0: I'm made. don't give it away. friends and enemies. It's episode 305 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, and doing something a little bit different than usual. Uh, I am I am neither joined by Ed nor producer Jeremy because I'm I'm doing an in-person record right now with friend of the show, repeat, now three-peat guest of the show, Salome Villian, who is uh, out here in Melbourne visiting me for the week. We're doing a bunch of great events and workshops and and panels and things like that, really maximizing uh, bringing Salome to the other side of the world. And so I was like, well, since you're here, Let's do a podcast together, and so this is—I <laughs> think this is the first in-person record, um, definitely with an in, uh, with a guest that we have done. We've we've done one in-person record back in Vegas, like two years ago, where me, Jeremy, and Ed were all in the same hotel room. But so this this is a first for for TMK. But Salome, wow. thank you for for joining me yet again.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to um, be able to be the inaugural in-person <laughs> <laughs> guest for the pod.
0: I know it is It is interesting to be like sitting across a table from somebody and not looking at them on a Zencaster screen <laughs> and then actually having a conversation. Um, but it's great. It's great. So, so one of the, uh, things that has kind of brought you out to Melbourne and, and um, that we've been talking a lot about at different events. And I was like, we need to get these excellent conversations down on the podcast for, for people to listen to it is that you, you, You've got a new um, working paper, uh, a draft paper that you are uh, really, I think, finishing up. Like I've read, you, you call it a draft paper, but it, it, it reads as pretty <laughs> done to me. Um, but on what on valuing social data, and I, I think that this this paper definitely falls in the the lineage of your work, but also um, a lot of like my work on the political economy of data, a lot of the the, the kind of discussions and and concerns that we are constantly raising on on TMK as well around how do we understand different facets of how data relates to capitalism, right? Like, you know, we kind of know that data is this form of of capital now. That it, that there's an imperative to accumulate it. It's necessary for um, you know production. It's necessary uh, for for value creation in some way, right? There's some sense that data is necessary for value creation. But I I remember when I like wrote my when data is capital article. I had a very short section called like deriving value from data and it was more me like like signposting being like I know this is a really important topic but it's also a really complex one I don't have time (laughs) to to write about it now which is also code for I haven't fully thought through this yet (laughs) so here's some some uh, bullet points about how you can about how people derive value from data Um, but there's there's need for like more theorization of this and and your your new paper with Amanda Parsons, um, who's also a, a, a tax lawyer, really actually like answers that call I think in a, a super in depth way. Um, and so let's let's get into the kind of core argument of your paper, which is really trying to understand this relationship between a thing that you define as social data and how it relates to value creation or value capture as it might be. Um, So maybe we could start... With that first instance of like, what do you mean by social data in, in this way? How, how is, what is this like specific category of data that you're identifying as particularly important and central to this kind of political economy of, of information capitalism?
1: Yeah, um, sure. And I should note, like, you know, like short section of your paper, like, needs more time and space. Well, flower reviews are good for anything. It's really giving you the time and space to uh, get into uh, a reasonably complicated thing and get to flesh it out because um, they tend to be quite meaty. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Amanda and I use the uh, concept of social data. And really I, I kind of, I, I, <laughs> like you, I sort of suggest this concept in some of my earlier work, but, um, kind of took this opportunity or this paper to really kind of try to drill down in it more. Cause I get a lot of questions about why I use the term social data as opposed mm. to personal data. Um, and I really do mean it to just refer to data about people, Um, and there are sort of two categories or like ways you can think about what that might include. So it might include data that is directly collected from people. So like when I walk around a city and like location data is following me and my phone around the city, that is data that's being collected directly from me. Or like Mm. when I tap my phone onto the square payments profile and there's like a financial transaction between me and the coffee shop, that's data that's collected directly from me, Um, but it also includes data that um, might not be directly collected from me but can still be used to kind of, um, infer or predict or apprehend facts about me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that might be again, you know, data collected from other people that is then applied to me, but it can even be things like weather data. So if we know that it's raining, that's probably going to impact traffic patterns. That's probably going to impact whether or not I walk or I drive. So there are still insights you can derive about people from weather data. And then that kind of way, um, and in that particular application, whether data can also be social data. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty committed to talking about data, about people as social data, um, because, you know, again, central thesis of a, <laughs> the animating sort of axiom of a lot of mm. my work is that data is a valuable commodity in this particular historical moment that we find ourselves in, not for what it can reveal about me as an individual, but what large amounts of information collected in granular and continuous flows from people at scale can reveal about people, about populations, about people, about categories of people. So um, again, I think moving from personal to social really nicely captures and sort of intuitively suggests that concept. Um, And, you know, happy to get um, more into this over the course of our conversation, Mm. but what Amanda and I then say is sort of like, okay, so... The category of information we're talking about is social data. The question we're interested in is like, how does data about people turn into money for companies? Like, mm-hmm. why are entities like spending money, on, like running server farms and keeping them cool, and hiring data scientists and like investing in machine learning? Like, you know, understanding that political economy, um, understanding how data relates to capital. Um, like, what's the kind of value proposition that? Uh, entities see here that like leads to all of this stuff they're doing to try mm. to collect all of this, stu- uh, information about us, um, and constitute it really. Um, and we kind of call that value prediction value.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it's really sort of meant to be the value that companies get from like apprehending. And then in being able to apprehend facts about people, oftentimes large groups of people, then, using that to, like, inform a number of human activities. And so some of those human activities have have to do with the people that they're collecting the information from, Mm -hmm. right, nudging behavior. But some of that human activity has to do with, like, firm strategies too. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the goal of the piece really is to just sort of catalog and provide like a reasonably systematic accounting of the different sort of business strategies that companies use to turn prediction value from social data into money um, or exchange value as we... (laughs) <laughs> call it in the piece
0: yeah this i mean and it really is getting to the heart of this like conversion problem and in, in value yeah. theory right which yeah. is a, a really kind of it's very foundational especially to like marxist political yeah. economy so you know we got more than 200 years ago you know <laughs> yeah. uh, kind of these you know political economists kind of saying that like we know that abstractly you know the this the capital the cycle of capital is the you know the the um you know, you have commodities and you turn that into money and you turn that into commodities. That's the kind of like, uh, the, the consumption cycle. Right. Um, but then like, you know, you've got the, 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 the whole idea of capital is turning money into more money with commodities as the kind of intermediary point, mm-hmm. but you have to convert, right? You, you're going to take money. That's your capital and you're investing it into these server farms and, and, and data scientists and things like that. And then, you know, that is somehow producing a commodity, right? And that, that might be like social data. Yeah. Um, and then somehow you need to turn that into more money, right? The, the M prime. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, the uh the, the the that cycle abstractly makes sense and I think it is it was the kind of the logic I was identifying that data yeah, the- kind of, kind of is in, impelled by now in political economy but how that cycle actually manifests that's the that's the conversion problem right mm-hmm. like how do you actually convert um, money into commodities into money uh, into more money when we're talking about data and I think that like that is what you are really getting at here with this drawing a distinction between, you know, the exchange value of data. So that kind of the idea of like data as something that has a price on a market, right? Mm-hmm. And you can like go to a market and then buy and sell it. And they're, they're, the, the, the money conversion is a direct transaction. Um, that's really easy, but that's not how a lot of data is converted into money or into economic capital, Um, you know, setting aside, of course, like the $200 billion data broker industry, which does do that. Mm -hmm. They do kind of create these markets, but that's, that's really only a small portion of the, the amount of total social data that's collected, processed and used and the, and how, and uh, the amount of social data that's like capitalized capitalized and valorized. So Mm -hmm. yeah, you're, I think you are, Taking very seriously the question of, like, well, how does all that other social data that is not subject to direct exchange value in a market, how does it become valuable? And and I I, I like this idea of prediction value here because as you know, as we can get through it, in, in your paper you do, you kind of go through these three scripts you call it, where mm-hmm. prediction value can, you know, directly or indirectly be a, at some point. Um, eventually or potentially (laughs) turned into money. And I think that, that, the, the indirectness of it too, and the the kind of the sometimes very convoluted nature of turning data into um, into value of some kind of a, of, of a monetary value, and uh, and the extremely complex like socio-technical systems deployed to do that really obfuscate uh, like how is data valuable? It's 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 not actually very um, clear in a lot of cases. In fact, like. The examples that really resonate with people the most around like surveillance or things like that are cases where you can like really draw a one to one connection like you can see how that data is being used for value or you might think you see how it's being used for value, yeah. um, but there's so much more going on there where not only are like critical theories of data don't really have a good sense of this that then also means that our like Governance, our policymaking, our lawmaking around data also does not have a good sense of this. And you being a, a law scholar, I mean, that's something that you also really draw out here. But maybe we can back up a little bit and and get into um, like, yeah, what 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 why prediction value and what does prediction value kind of look like in terms of these scripts that you've uh, that you lay out in the paper?
1: Yeah. Um, so. You know, I, I should also back up and say, like, this this is exactly the kind of paper that happens when, you know, like a tax law scholar, a <laughs> data governance scholar, sit across the hall from each other and just love chatting in each other's offices instead of <laughs> stoically working um, alone. Um, because, you know, I think exactly to this point of prediction value, um, you know, I think we were really interested in how so much of the activity, um, around information collection and these investment decisions companies were making, um, and like the valuations (laughs) these companies were getting, and then how that kind of meets the various kind of conversations in legal circles around like, what's going on here? And like, how do we regulate it? And how do we even understand these enormous companies that like, don't seem to fit into how we think of like antitrust problems and like don't mm. seem to fit into how we think about like taxing value creation from like an international tax perspective, which is really like Amanda's area. And of course, for me, like don't seem to have completely slipped the traces of the existing legal regimes. We have to govern information production, which is like privacy and data governance. Yeah. And it, we came to the idea that we have to disambiguate and sort of slow down the, um, analytically, our understanding of how, like, value, like, how profit was being produced in this economy to try to, um, if not answer those questions yet, at least, like, understand what was happening Mm. so that we could, like, begin to have a more... like informed and specific conversation as a set of like legal scholars about our various legal regimes and how they are like encountering, uh, this activity. And so that's where prediction value kind of came in for us. And, um, you know, for, for all the value theory people out there, (laughs) um, we, we really think of prediction value as just a particular kind of use value. Um, So it's just the use value you get from information. um, and you know what? What we take pains to point out in the um, article again, because we have space to do it, is that like the idea that information is useful as a way to like derive insight about, and then. Derive from that insight could exert control over people. It's like pretty old, mm-hmm. <laughs> very old, um, as old as the concept of bureaucracy, probably, um, and probably even older than that. So
0: yeah, you have a great footnote uh, early in the article to "The Dawn of Everything" by <laughs> David Wingrow and David Graber, which we had done a book club all, a series on TMK, going through that that whole that whole book, and and that's exactly right. Like that was one of the three core forms of power that they talk about is control over information. So yeah. it's like it's not as if like um the computer revolution hit in the 50s or 60s and then we're like, wow, information is suddenly power. Right. <laughs>
1: it's like well, it's been power, you know. Yeah. Um yeah, so you know, it, there's been like use value in information um it, of this kind for a long time, but you know, of course, we are in a particular set of historic conditions where the capacity for entities to sort of tap in and mine and accumulate at scale that use value is unprecedented. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, it was helpful, I think, for us to just sort of separate out this concept, again, sort of tapping into long traditions of social theory of thinking about the relationships between use value and exchange value. Um, We're trying to disavow like formal systematic (laughs) relations between them, like hardcore Mm. value theory, but at least saying like, look, we have these two analytic categories and it can be really helpful for understanding this kind of complex process. Like you said, it's not straightforward how data turns into profit for entities. And it, it, there are a lot of different ways (laughs) Mm -hmm. that it turns, that the companies use information, um, to, gain competitive advantage and to, um, accumulate profits. Um, and so that's kind of the primary goal of this piece is just to kind of catalog that. Um, as you know, we kind of identify three scripts. And so mm-hmm. one, the first script, um, is kind of just the direct conversion of prediction value into exchange value. That would include the $200 billion data broker industry. Um, we also think it includes, some of the more like well studied phenomena about targeted advertising so mm-hmm. the fact that google can just immediately turn around to advertisers and charge i think like <laughs> 63 extra cents to the dollar or something like that, um, for a behavioral advertising spot, as opposed to like an unbehavioral advertising mm. spot, like that's just them directly being able to say like, because of the superior information that we have, we're giving you this markup. Um,
0: and we can kind of think of that as like the prediction premium, the prediction, premium. that, that yes, extra that's great. 63% is the, pre- like that for Google, that is the, the data is worth 63% more, more. because it has a prediction value associated with it. Exactly.
1: In that particular kind of transaction, like them Mm. to the advertiser, that premium they're putting on, we think of that as also just kind of like, that's like, you're meeting the market. You're saying, I'm charging you 63% extra and somebody's agreeing to that. That's Mm. like a direct, like, okay, we're seeing like a direct premium markup, um, on the, the sort of value proposition of access to superior information in that context. Um, the second category, which I mean, you really could write a whole law review article just on the second script. Um, and in, in a sense, many people have, um, not just law review articles, many uh, articles is what we call indirect uh, conversion between prediction value into exchange value or, or, or price. And this is all of the ways that information is used to um, lower costs, uh, increase returns, Um And uh, sort of related to those kind of broad economic categories, um, lower risk of entry into new markets. So this is where you see things like, and and people are really starting to pay attention to this second scripty behavior that, you know, again, I think... Yeah. attention. There's a lot more attention being paid to this kind of activity. We kind of lump it into this general category of indirect conversion. Um, So how is this happening? On the consumer side, things like first degree price discrimination. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. being able to sort of control the information ecosystem or information environment to present things to me, to use past information um, about my willingness to pay, to offer me a personalized price for a product on, for example, Amazon. Or what's at issue in some um, antitrust litigation against Google right now, again, returning to advertisers, Um, them using knowledge of the past bids that advertisers had made Mm -hmm. (laughs) to set individually sort of determined reserve prices for different advertisers. And so that's just Google grabbing more surplus out of every exchange in, because they have information about exactly how much that advertiser is willing to pay for an ad spot. And so instead of giving them like, you know, giving everybody like it's going to cost 70 cents to, um, have this ad here in some, for some advertisers, if they know that they would actually be willing to pay 90 cents, they're going to tell them it's cost 90 cents. And then Mm -hmm. they pocket the extra 20 cents, uh, you know, sort of across, um, you know, (laughs) <laughs> many thousands of interactions. Yeah. Um,
0: then you enter an office space problem where you're yeah. extracting fractions of a penny exactly. on every transaction, but there's so millions so and billions pennies. of transactions that, yeah. yeah, next thing you know, you're one of the largest companies in the world. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> and, 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 you know, on the consumer facing side, again, like for Amazon, like you, various sort of tactics to sort of know okay well uh, <laughs> these are sleep-deprived first-time parents and like you know if they had bought the like you know this like little stupid sleep aid three months ago maybe we would have charged them twenty dollars but when they're looking at it at 4 a.m <laughs> mm. <laughs> well we know what situation they're in we're charging them like35 dollars <laughs> and they will absolutely pay that um, and you uh, Here, there's some really cool work um, by Rory Van Loo, and I think Nikita Agarwal is his co-author on this, actually looking at how um, Amazon uh, doesn't just sort of like directly first-degree price discriminate, but they also will show you more expensive versions of a thing earlier on and you mm-hmm. actually have to go very deep into, um, the pages to get to the cheaper version of a thing. So again, sort of ways in which information can be used to kind of manipulate the exchange environment to extract more surplus. Um, and so that's kind of just extracting extra profit out of any given exchange because they're able to sort of use information to set individual prices, um, mm-hmm. on the potentially more nefarious side on the cost cutting side, that's where a lot of this, um, work that people who have really, um, attract uh, the use of surveillance technologies, um, on the like labor side of things, mm-hmm. um, where that comes in. So a lot of cost cutting has to do with like using a, a lot of intense surveillance and oversight over workers to do things like extreme tailorization, um, extreme kind of like, you know, offering, Drivers like as little as they're willing to accept um to to take a ride, or exactly like right at the point where they're about to stop driving, offering them an, a lucrative ride just to like keep them hooked a little bit longer, mm. that kind of stuff. So really kind of reducing in cost. Um that's also kind of an indirect conversion uh tactic. And then finally you get things where um <laughs> entities can use information to sort of study a market and get a very good sense of a market before they enter that market. And so they're able to sort of enter new areas of business or new lines of business um, at at very reduced risks because Mm -hmm. they've been able to sort of granularly observe that entity or that market for a long time. Um, And again, here you can think about like Amazon, like they'll observe a lot about the buying and selling of mattresses and what works and what doesn't before they get into the mattress making business or before they partner with an independent contractor to make mattresses under the prime brand, which is usually what happens. Or for example, Square, which is like the payments platform, um, they will have a lot of information (laughs) about a Mm. business and it's like transactions and the environment that it's operating in. And it's like, base um, of customers before they develop products like commercial loans. And they're able to price those commercial loans very advantageously because they have incredible insight into the entities to which they're offering those loans. So they're able to enter into new businesses um, knowing a lot more and having to take a lot less risk and price in a lot less risk. So that was a long... (laughs) uh, But that was just Script 2.
0: Yeah. Well, (laughs) let's get to Script 3 in a minute. But that bringing up like the Square example Makes me think as well. There was reporting recently um, by an investigation by the um, USPIRG, the Public Interest Research Group, which is a big kind of consumer advocacy, consumer investigations kind of group. They do a lot of that kind of stuff as well as o- other other research. But they they had um, a, a, an article, an investigation looking at MasterCard's data sales division, mm-hmm. which is just which is one of the kind of most profitable. Divisions of Mastercard, and Mastercard is along with Visa, you know, the duopoly yeah. of, of, of of credit card um, payment processing. You know, you've got like Stripe and these, and they're they're massive as well. But like Visa and Mastercard, if you're going to a merchant, if you're buying something online, nine times out of ten, maybe nine point five times out of ten, you're using Mastercard or Visa. And of course, you know, they are they operate as like you know, for a long time and they, they've really exploded. I mean, they have become two of the, two of the biggest companies in the world Mm -hmm. pretty recently too. And they've been, of there's been some controversy around them, like jacking up and keep raising their transaction fees where they're cutting, you know, taking, you know, two, three, four percent of a transaction. And they're pocketing that as a payment processing fee. Um, I mean, anecdotally, for uh, uh, usually merchants will kind of eat that cost um, and hide it from customers, which means that customers, consumers, don't often don't even really know that they're that they're is that big of a cost um, going to the payment processor. I have noticed that with the raising of, of um, credit card with transaction fees, uh, some of the um, shops where I uh, I'll go in Melbourne have started to just add that to like, they're passing that, that on to consumers because mm-hmm. they're like the cost is getting too high for us the merchants to kind of eat this cost and hide it from you and so now they're having to pass it on which also means that like it's the merchants who catch the flack for the increase yeah. of, a, of another surcharge and not the the, the the People Visa or mastercard or MasterCard. <laughs> yeah, but I bring this up as well because the um, that was a tangent. Um, but the um, uh, U.S. Perg f- was talking about the data sales division for for Mastercard. And it's one of the most profitable divisions yeah. in Mastercard. And it's just kind of been operating, and and it is interesting because it like connects these different scripts. Because mm-hmm. for Mastercard, they are packaging up um, and lots of aggregate data about. People's transactions because they have an enormous amount of data. Yeah. I mean, so much data about how people shop, when, where they shop, their lifestyles, their habits. Like, you can really capture a full profile of people through their shopping, through their their transactions. And of course, they're not selling like personal, you know, here's yeah, it's Salome's, like, here's
1: Salome's. <laughs> shopping patterns. Yeah,
0: they're not doing that. <laughs> um, I'm sure they would love to, but there's probably it's probably technically difficult and legally difficult to do yeah. something like that. But what they do instead is they sell the aggregate data, right? And this also goes to your point around social data, where and and you know in your um, an article you've been on the show to talk about before your relational theory of data governance, which I think is the best. I I am always um, advocating and, and telling people that. This, if they read one article, they have to read that article to understand (laughs) data um, because it really lays out this kind of idea of social data in in real clarity um, uh, that what matters is the relation between data, not the individual data point, but the ongoing collection of data and putting it in relationship to other data through these vertical and horizontal relations. But um, in that article, you really crystallize a, a key point here, which is that Like these companies, you know, Facebook, Amazon, MasterCard, whoever, like, despite our discourses around data in this like very personal way around like my privacy, they're creeping on me, they're surveilling me. It's like they don't, but none of these people actually care about you yeah. as a person. They care about us as people, yep. you know, as a population and the, the relationships between us. And so that's what MasterCard is doing is they're packaging up a lot of like aggregate data as well as creating lots of data products on that data, kind of Mm -hmm. marketing, uh, analytics, you know, segmentation, categorization. So they're processing the data, they're analyzing it, they're giving the data more value by kind of doing stuff with it. And then they sell that to whoever wants it. That's script one, right? That's the kind of direct, Mm -hmm. like MasterCard has this data, they package it up into data commodities you know marketing products or whatever and they sell that and there's a there's a there's a transaction you pay money for that and then but then the question comes of that like, well, what if, what are people doing with that exactly. data? Why would an insurance company want a bunch of want a bunch of like marketing data from MasterCard? Yeah. You know, why would Amazon want that? It's like, well, don't they don't they have their own data about transactions or why would Alphabet, right? Like it, why would anybody want that data? Mm-hmm. Um because they're buying that data because they then think it will be valuable for them. Mm-hmm. This is this is why it's not a consumption cycle where you're you're like I'm buying this commodity from Mastercard and then I'm going to eat it up, nom right. nom nom, right? Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, I ate it's all like that data. Co-
1: I, I buy the milkshake. <laughs> I drink the milkshake. Yeah, if you will. it's like that's not what's <laughs> happening.
0: It's a capital cycle where yeah. you are buying that that data from um, that commodity from MasterCard because you think you will be able to use that commodity to make more money uh, uh, in the future. So the question is, how do you make that more money? No, you're not going to be like selling it on doing like a, you know, I'm buying low from MasterCard and selling high to somebody else, but it's just the same product. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You're, you're, you're doing something with that data where you think it will give you an edge. It will give you value. It will give you power as we get to script three in some more indirect way. Right. And so, and so, um, I think as well as we get into, as we talk about script three, um, and as we start talking about the kind of the way the, the deficits of not only our critical analysis, but our legal understanding of this, I think that point at which like somebody buys a marketing data product from MasterCard we don't really know what to do after that, right? Yeah. Like, how, how do we govern that? How do we regulate? It? Like, you know, we can regulate data broker markets because those are, like, easy to understand as, like, markets. They're, like, commodity exchanges. And we can be like, you shouldn't be selling that kind of data. But right. what happens or after like, someone- like, do
1: it publicly so we can watch you do it, like the stock exchange. Exactly.
0: And that's actually <laughs> a lot of the problem with data brokers, like, in policy uh, circles is not that they exist, but that they exist in these, like, shadowy, shadowy secret. Ways, yeah. it's like, why aren't you? Yeah, why aren't you out in like the, the the public bazaar, like selling this data. exactly? Yeah. <laughs> like, and but so it completely misses the point as to like, well, that's not the end of the value creation um, cycle for this data. It's mm-hmm. really only the beginning, exactly. but we kind of treat it as the end point yeah. uh, because we're stuck in script one. Right. Um, so maybe we can, with that example in mind, and like, kind of what comes after. This, that right. So script two, some maybe, you know, we can think of all kinds of indirect ways that people might use that that MasterCard data to yeah, get into a new market. Maybe you're you want to see what are people's buying habits. What kind of things might they be buying in relationship to each other? So you can like do some horizontal integration of a market. Maybe you can like get into it. You're in a market for beds for mattresses. And then you're like, Oh, people often buy pajamas when, when they buy mattresses. So maybe I'll get into the pajama market as well and Mm -hmm. have it. And so we can think about that as like, okay, there's a kind of indirect way that that data is providing value, but what, what is script three? Um, let's, let's, let's get to the third one there about like, how else might people provide uh, or derive value from this social data.
1: Yeah. Um, so script three is what we are, um, for V for me, very like normally as a data governance privacy person. And for Amanda, very provocatively as a tax scholar, <laughs> um, suggesting to our colleagues is the category of information that indefinitely and or like, it just doesn't make sense to think about it converting into dollar value because I mean, even if in some very indirect way, it does kind of like increase the market capitalization of some company, um, really what's, what the value proposition of that sort of use value prediction value is, is the exertion of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, in some senses, like the script uh, <laughs> analytically, it's kind of the script one, because that is the, like, you know, if I were to say like the pure form of prediction value, it is this like. As David Graeber notes, like, foundation information is a form of social control, <laughs> right? Um, it is just kind of using information uh, to exert um, or exercise power over people. Um, and so this does bleed in quite a lot into, again, a lot of the stuff you see over about o- over how, like, workforces are managed. Um, mm. So really sort of trying to... Um, maximize, <laughs> use information to really maximize power asymmetries between, um, the workers that you're sort of, uh, in- incorporating into your machinery for certain ends. Um, and, Uh, like (laughs) just using them very much for your own ends and really not having to give much of anything for the purposes and the ends that they might be entering into that relationship Mm -hmm. for. Um, And of course, Vina DuBall's algorithmic wage discrimination work and like algorithmic wage management, like um, I think does an excellent job of cataloging this. Zephyr Teachout's work is really great on this. Brishon Rogers' work is really great on this. Um, But, you know, it, it shockingly, it turns out that, you know, private companies are not just apolitical market actors that have no uh, agendas for the world. Um, they are also political actors. They have political ends and they have political agendas. Um, and when they... Uh, Have access to the incredible amounts of information that they have access to, one of the ways in which we want to sort of catalog the the use of that prediction value is in how they are not just rational, economic, sort of price-taking competitive actors, but are also interested in accumulating and exercising power. Um, And so uh, I don't know if this is an example is in the piece yet but it is in my talks that i've been giving about the piece the mm-hmm. classic example of like uber's project gray ball yeah <laughs> right um they are looking for particular political outcomes or they're like in this case, skirting political um, restrictions until they can build up enough of a user base that they can then kind of overwhelm or um, prevent uh, policymakers in a given area um, of kicking them out of of a city. Um, And they're using information in really fine-grained ways to enact that political agenda, that political goal. Um, And so, you know, I think in some sense the case we're trying to make in script three just is to legal scholars that don't ordinarily like don't put their like Veblen hats on Mm. (laughs) and like think about the fact that like if a company could, you know, um, invest in like, becoming less of a price taker or they could invest in like genuine innovation. They're like agnostic, if not slightly prefer like thing that's going to like allow them to like gain a toehold and of power Mm. (laughs) in a market, as opposed to like pushing the production possibility frontier curve forward. Um, and like, companies are clearly using information to do that. They're like clearly using ma- information to accumulate power in their relationships with customers and their relationships with competitors and their relationships with policymakers and in their relationships with workers. And that's really what Script 3 is trying to sort of capture.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think for TMK listeners, like it won't seem radical to be like, you you mean like there's power in, 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 yeah, the, in, in the, the, the economy? but for the modal
1: tax scholar, it is. And
0: for like <laughs> most of the government, government and our policy and regulation. It is, it is actually really radical. And I mean, I mean, for a lot of academics too, if I'm, if I'm being very frank, um, because I mean, I think this is the, uh, this is the, the, like the general insight of, of political economy is that like power and value are in direct relationship with each other right. right and so like then the task of political economy is to understand how that relation of power and value like manifest in a, in a real material way and so for me right. it's like we, uh, we, 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 we I'm a political economist who studies technology because technology is the way in which that relationship between power and value uh, very often and very importantly manifest in these like concrete material ways but i think that is actually like that's really that's a very novel still way and very radical way to think about that power and value are in relationship with each other that there are that there's not a political sphere and an economic sphere um but they're all it's just one sphere um and that they they there's not like venn diagram that's kind of overlapped with each other it is just the same circle right um and that like uh that if that's the case and it is the case then it would also make sense that the value of something like data a kind of key form of capital in these industries would also manifest in ways that are maybe more power forward rather than value money forward mm-hmm. right and so and and i think this is absolutely something we see all like all throughout the usage of uh, of of how data is used by companies to exert power over people, um, but I think we also do kind of miss the the way in which that power is exerted as well. I mean we we were talking about this um, you know earlier in the week, Salome, but like I think a really key example of this and a really really popular and and now mainstream way that that kind of understanding of of the power value of data um, is missed is when we think about it only in terms of like um, these companies being able to control our behavior Or, or like you know the kind of the the surveillance capitalism Shoshana Zuboff like mind control ray right that like um that yes, these, these, these companies use data to exert power in the world. And that power is also like a really direct power, right? It's like this, like direct power to control people, um, through, you know, whether it's through ideology, so you're controlling their minds or it's through force, you're controlling their bodies, their behaviors in some way. Um, and, and, you know, that it, That doesn't really actually exist in in any um, real way. I mean, this is also like Cory Doctorow's whole dismantling of the surveillance capitalism argument is that like this... That is the, that is the marketing, um, version right. of how like this power value relationship works that these companies would love for you to think that they actually have that really direct power right. to control your mind. Wow.
1: I thought I wanted tea, but actually I want coffee because this coffee, well, I should slip flip that because I always want coffee and <laughs> I only occasionally want it. yeah, exactly. That like mind control account. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because if if you can convince people for uh, that you have that power, then all of a sudden this like the data that you have Becomes more valuable because, yeah. as we know as well, value is not an intrinsic feature of anything. Value is social value. Yeah. Um, it is the value that we pre- that we give something. Is the value that we think it has. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is especially the case in the tech sector where so much value is speculative value. Because totally. this is something we haven't even touched on, but should should be said as well that like. A lot of the value, the prediction value of social data, whether it's through the direct forms, indirect forms, or through these power forms, that a lot of that value is itself speculative. It's mm-hmm. the potential for value, which more often than not drives... Um, not only tech companies now, but increasingly every industry um, to collect as much data as they can and to invest in the infrastructure and capital needed to like store that data, analyze that data, process that data. It's not because that they have a clear sense of how they're going to turn that into prediction value and then exchange value, but they just have a, a clear sense that there's they, value
1: to be had here. There's
0: value to be had here if yeah. we can figure out how to, to get at it, right? Yeah. And so you can really juice the value of the data that you have without ever actually doing anything with it if you can convince a lot of people that the data gives you a mind, con- like powers a mind control, ray, right. And then suddenly the valuation, the speculative financial value of your stock goes up and then you can then turn that into um, exchange Value on the market if you want, right? So it becomes a kind of like indirect way again of like of of creating value out of social data is convincing people that the data you have gives you um, godlike powers. Yeah. (laughs) But but like there, but that's also. Not to say, and we shouldn't swing the argument too far to the other side, where it's like, and these companies are actually like toothless, defanged. They're yeah. they're paper tigers. They don't actually have any power. It's all a big mirage, a Potemkin village of power. Right. That's not the case either. Exactly. It's more that like we're not actually seeing the 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 ways in which that power is being enacted. So, I don't know, do you want to yeah. give us some examples or talk about that more concretely? Sure.
1: Yeah. Um, no. I- I think that's a great kind of way to get into some of the scripts three stuff a bit more because, you know, again, I think because, um, our prevailing accounts of how that power is used is so, so are so focused on this, like they're going to rewrite our preferences, Mm -hmm. um, kind of uh, story. Um, and like the, 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 like constructing the spheres in which we like develop our sense of ourselves kind of account that like behavioral, um, rewriting kind of account, um, of, of surveillance capitalism, um, we're kind of missing, uh, a lot of the ways that the power is actually being used. Um, and you know, you kind of get stuck into a discourse around that. So if you can then disprove that that's actually that effective, you're like, Oh, it's all just empty speculation. And like, then there's a market solution waiting for you. Right. Which is to say like, and eventually the market will realize that this is Valueless for actually controlling people's behavior, and we'll have a market solution, a market correction. Mm-hmm. But as you point out, in the meantime, a lot of how this power is being used is in far more kind of direct and coercive ways. Um, and I think if this is like a a, a, um, a problem that exists downstream from, you know, again, I'll I'll talk about my area, which is privacy and data governance law. Really focusing too much on or overly on consumers and the kinds of questions and issues that we, uh, preoccupations we have with consumers as opposed to workers. Um, and when you're sort of focused on consumers, right? Like the way consumer protection works is that I need to be like a rational person who like exercises my choices and my preferences in the market and my capacity to like exercise my like, you know, uh, you know, uh, in behavioral economic terms, my, like, rational, Mm -hmm. slow-thinking capacities before I enter the machine that is going to, like, you know, nudge and sludge me and, you know, operate on my irrational, fast-thinking capacities um, is, like, the point of what consumer protection has to do. And it has to make sure that I'm that rational. And so these problems of, like, oh, they're, like, rewriting my preferences and exerting control subconsciously that I don't even realize is going on is like a big preoccupation if you're stuck in that paradigm. But if you just zoom out and you pay attention to how a lot of surveillance technologies are being used on workers, like workers are not like Amazon warehouse workers are not like, I love working 17-hour days without going to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> they really understand that like very direct forms of extreme surveillance and tailorization is being exerted on them very directly. It's not like mm-hmm. the contracted drivers for Amazon are like, I love that someone is like, paying attention to whether or not I have my seatbelt on and how fast I'm driving and, like, tracking every drop-off I make and, like, gamifying how much I can do my job. Like, they understand that they're being, like, very aggressively managed and squeezed. Um, And that's a very direct form of information being used to exert power in that relationship. um, That is not, does not fit into our, like, oh, they're rewriting my preferences account. Um, Mm. And so when we look at those other kind of forms, we can exactly capture this idea that, like, whether or not the behavioral control, like you know, whether or not it's actually the case that Netflix going from 10 seconds to seven seconds to autoplay results in me watching more of the great British baking show, (laughs) which it undoubtedly does. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like the thing that we should be getting. Like, that's not like the primary normative or social qualm that we might have about how information is being used to exert power. It's Mm. the Amazon driver, uh, right. Contracted (laughs) Amazon driver. It's the warehouse worker. It's the gig worker that's being pushed to work longer, harder, um, for lower pay constantly. And, and that's kind of the non paper tiger kind of application and script three stuff that we ought to be paying attention to.
0: Yeah. And, and then in a bigger sense as well, that translates into like market domination, right? Like the, like the, the social data and the prediction value of data is really key to how, uh, these companies have or want to, Uh, exert domination over markets and I think just to and we can maybe start this will give us a segue into thinking about this in terms of like uh, where data governance falls short um, and understanding this relationship between data and value creation. we can think about this as well of like uh this is why lena khan's ftc is so radical but also why it's like subject to all of these hit pieces right there's just Mm -hmm. another hit piece on lena khan in like new york magazine um by some guy who used to work for the antitrust defense law firm that is like representing google in there and so it's like come on like you you gotta if you're gonna write a hit piece like cover your tracks a little bit better but um uh but the All of it is, is focused on this idea that like, Lena Khan is doing something radical because she's paying attention to like market power. Yeah. Right? She's not just paying attention to, again, like this really myopic sense of like value, which is the kind of the very uh, Borkian kind of antitrust, which is like consumer benefit, right? Or consumer value. Like, are consumers being uh, taken advantage of in a market with a monopoly? Like, so is Amazon, you know, getting a monopoly and then Jacking the prices up, or limiting the selection of of goods, or somehow constraining consumer choice—it's um, all about a, a kind of a consumer welfare model of of understanding, like. Uh, antitrust which is ultimately meant to be a theory and a a kind of approach of law that's about like market power right but it's kind of lost that because it's it's hyper focused on these like very neoclassical kind of marginal um economic understandings of power like margin i wish they were marginal in the 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 (laughs) sense of being like fringe but marginal in the sense of like understanding value just in terms of like price right and like mm-hmm. this kind of like market value um and 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 uh like the translation of preferences into prices um and so trying to so if that's our model for understanding like how we regulate um, a company like Amazon or how we understand the practices and innovations of a company like Amazon, then it doesn't get us far at all in terms of like understand if anything, Amazon looks like a big boon, right? Because it's like, well, it's greatly expanded our our choices. It's all about, it's, they say they're, cons- they're obsessed with consumers, right? With their mm-hmm. customers. And so it's like all about like consumer welfare and, and, and all of that kind of stuff um and so if anything uh, along that lines a company like amazon a company like alphabet a company like you know you name it as long as they are not like uh being these kind of caricatures of a monopolist um then they don't they don't run afoul of the the kind of legal theory Mm -hmm. um here because it's not thinking in terms of like power how is that social data being translated into power over a market power over consumers and you know much more about this than I do um, so I'll hand it over to you but that is my understanding that that's like that's really the kind of theory that Lena khan is is trying to bring into government and the the pushback there like hipster antitrust as it's (laughs) called or like all of the hit pieces um you know really show that like trying to talk about power um in in a realm that everybody is used to talking about price uh it, it strikes people as incoherent
1: yeah, I mean, and, I, you know, I, I should also say, like, I am no antitrust expert <laughs> myself, but, you know, I mean, I do think that that's one area where, obviously, these questions of how information is being cultivated and used to produce profit, but also along the way and, and key to those profit-producing strategies, cultivating forms of power— like really helps to understand the kind of conceptual disconnect between how you have enormous companies exerting extreme amounts of power over both consumers and um, workers and competitors, but not seeing it translate into these exchange value, like red flags that our antitrust regimes are used to seeing. So once again, kind of holding apart prediction value and its cultivation and its accumulation and its exercise from exchange value is very helpful You know, you could sort of apply that to these kinds of cases and be like, okay, <laughs> we have companies that are doing a whole lot of cultivation and application and exploitation of ex- prediction value. And they're very savvy about not converting that into exchange value in ways that are going to ding um, or set off the anti-competitive alarm bells. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to raise prices, which is the exchange value kind of do not pass <laughs> a pathway. They're going to call. They're going to cultivate and and, and exploit and extract, and then exercise the prediction value in ways in in ways that the legal regimes w- will not <laughs> kind of uh, come down on and see as problematic. Mm-hmm. And so again, I think holding these kind of two concepts apart really helps you to see like it's very arbitrary. <laughs> That, you know, we only care about the prices going up in this one little area, which is like for consumers, when they can get exactly the same result by just engineering what, pri- what products I see to begin with, because there are like thousands of essentially identical products. So Amazon can turn around and tell um, their regulators, like, look, we offer the coffee cup at $2.00. Um, that's That exists. We're not raising prices. That's like a real choice that consumers have. Meanwhile, me finding the $2 coffee cup as opposed to the $4 coffee cup is like essentially impossible mm-hmm. on the website. And, you know, if, especially if they know I'm willing to pay for the $4 coffee cup, like that's the cup I'm seeing, that's the cup I'm bri- buying. Um, mm. These are all extremely cheap prices. <laughs> the cups, by the way, I don't know. It's not like a realistic. But, you know, again, I think you you lose sight of that if you don't have an analytic capacity to hold these two kinds of value Uh, or, you know, I don't know. I think it's very helpful Mm. for seeing how these strategies, they're just like a set of options that Amazon has. And if you think about it that way, like, it's extremely rational that they're not going to do the, like, cartoonish monopolist thing of raising prices because then, like... They fall squarely into the category of stuff that antitrust knows to watch for and cares about, but there are all of these other ways that they can use prediction value to increase profits and or like grow more competitively and or foreclose competitors from entering their markets that are not going to set off those legal regimes. And so again, as, as two legal scholars, we're really interested in that because that seems completely to us like normatively and legally arbitrary, but you don't see it as normatively and legally arbitrary if you can't understand this like strategy of value cultivation in the form of information.
0: Yeah. And I think you, you hit on something there as well. This kind of distinction between profit and growth Yeah, too, which is so like <laughs> our, our, are all of talking our talking about
1: profit, but a big thing is also growth.
0: Yeah. And, and often a bigger thing, <laughs> a bigger is, is, thing growth. is growth. Yeah, And so like, we can kind of think about profit as the direct relation to exchange value and growth as you know, the relationship to prediction value there. You know, it's not, of course, like there's crossover, but it also helps to explain, um, like the, the weird business models of yeah. of companies that are really driven by social data and by prediction value where they are not so concerned immediately or obviously with um Creating like profit margins, like sustainable and consistent profit margins, they are more than willing to forgo profit for very, very, very long periods of time, burn huge amounts of, of economic capital in order to cultivate that prediction value, in order to cultivate market power, um, in order to grow, to grow and grow and grow. And then eventually they will reach a point where they have to, where they feel like they need to make the pivot. It towards profit, but it's only after they have grown and grown, and only after they have cultivated an enormous amount of prediction value um, from the social data that they that they have. And then they will say, okay, let's let's set about thinking about how we convert all of this into exchange value. And then at that point, it's a lot easier because they've already, they've created the conditions yeah. for that conversion to happen rather than seeking about trying to do the conversion without the conditions being in place.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Um, no, I think that's a great sort of way to understand, you know, sometimes we do, especially when we're talking, I think when I say we, I mean Amanda, because she's the one who presents this to tax <laughs> scholars, not me. You know, it blows their minds to think that they're, the third cat the third category exists. Um, And we always have to kind of say like, well, when we say like it it doesn't convert, it's not like these entities are like never interested in making money. Like Mm -hmm. they're operating under capitalism. They are interested in making money. But as you said, I think they're, they understand that the longer term value proposition here is to alter the conditions in which that conversion can happen. And that there's a lot less regulatory headaches for them and a lot more ultimate payoffs to to be had in pursuing that kind of strategy as opposed to the more standard script one, script two kinds of strategies.
0: And I think it, like I I love this as well, because as well, like one of the things that motivated me writing the when data is capital piece is what I was seeing as this huge miscategorization of people talking about data as anything but capital. They were talking about it as a commodity. There is for a while there, people were talking about it as labor, right? Yeah. They were like, data they're is a form around. of labor. Yeah, they're still around, less less so. But, yeah. uh, but, uh, but you know, people were talking about data as a form of labor, or they were th- talking about it, data as a form as a as a commodity. Nobody yeah. was talking about data as what I think it actually is, which is capital. And and it makes sense when we think about it. It makes more sense when we think about it in terms of this distinction we've been drawing out here between exchange value and production. Value where it's like it also, well, why would uh, these companies be prioritizing growth um, over immediate? profits uh it, you know well it makes sense when we consider that all of this social data that they're accumulating and, and investing in, processing and doing stuff with is not the accumulation of a lot of commodities yes right it's not as if they're like we are getting I'm lots amassing of
1: amassing a giant pile of wood yeah so that a, i eventually I, can sell all this wood
0: exactly which i think <laughs> is how people on um, like it it is Because it's the traditional model of a firm in capitalism, which is to be like, I produce or amass or or intermediate the exchange of widgets, right? And so, like, when you see a company that seems like they are completely driven by amassing a big amount of stuff, social data... In your commodity paradigm, you're like, well, this is really bizarre. Like, why, like, why are these companies doing just this? Stockpiling
1: the, all these, yeah, widgets. they're just
0: stockpiling widgets, and it's like, well, because they're not. What they're actually doing is they're doing lots of investment yeah. into capital. They are, they are creating a, a, a massive. Capital base, they are investing in uh, refining their capital. And if we understand capital as like uh, part of the means of production, right? It's the totally. machinery, the material, the money that's needed yep. for production to happen, the production and extraction of surplus value at some point. So these companies are amassing huge amounts of capital and then they're using that capital to to build. The thing that they're building is ways of creating and producing prediction value, right? And then that's that's what they're doing. They're in this big cycle. And then at some point after they've invested enough into their capital, into their abilities to produce and extract prediction value, then they pivot to the more traditional exchange value conversion of money, right? And so it, it's. It, I think it. If we're talking about again, like critical scholars, but also if we're talking about uh, lawmakers and regulators, um, it. A lot of the confusion comes from this total miscategorization of the activities that are actually happening, happening here.
1: Yeah, and you know, again, I think for us, what's there are so many interesting sort of follow-on observations that come from. Again, as we said, kind of like the primary point of this paper, which we delusionally thought would just be an essay, and it's like a huge, watery well, article. That's like there's like too much stuffed into it, um, you know. Was just to kind of like lay out these processes, mm. <laughs> and um, it's funny because I, I, you're totally right that we are kind of very much laying out how data becomes a key kind of form of. Of the investment strategy, the long-term kind of investment strategies that you tend to think of, like capital investments, falling under, we we just kind of want to like map that out. Mm. Uh, just be like, here's like various things, and and sort of secondarily, and like in service of that goal, needing language to kind of hold apart the price, the price sort of market value and the actual value proposition of information long before. It becomes that just because that's so much of how the strategies just actually um, shake out. Um, So the analytic kind of contribution of the piece very much is in service to the descriptive contribution of the piece. But, you know, I think a nice thing that kind of follows from mapping all of these ways of like immediate conversion, indirect conversion, like long-term potential non-conversion of prediction value into exchange value is you can then kind of step back and plug it into a lot of the conversations that have been happening around like techno feudalism versus techno capitalism. Mm-hmm. Like is all of this just rent extraction? Like now you can start to think about like, well, again, putting our Veblen hats on, like, <laughs> some of the strategies of capital accumulation are going to just be like, you know, if it's less work to use the capital that I have to like put a spoke in the wheel of a competitor or to like squeeze a worker a little bit more, as opposed to doing genuine innovation, then obviously I'm going to use it that way. But if it turns out that like, it's actually less work to do genuine innovation, then I'm going to use it that way. And so, you know, you can start to get a better sense of like the mix of strategies that can get used in the eventual conversion into exchange value. Mm. Um, And that's like outside the scope of what this piece does, but I do think allows you to kind of look at that kind of um, make an assess or, you know, I I could imagine follow on work being able to, especially by people who do empirical work and can actually like (laughs) see what people on the ground are doing rather than you know legal scholars who just kind of sit around but um you know you can sort of look at like okay well how much of the like script 2 script 3 stuff would we consider like actual innovation as opposed to just power <laughs> you know um and uh that also i think gets um i think is really helpful for understanding how this economy is changing and growing um and touches on, you know, like another kind of animating question that, you know, I think got Amanda and I really started on this path, which is that um you know, for legal scholars like so she's a tax scholar, like if you're a ta- if you're the, if your tax regime is really only paying attention at the moment that like value meets the market, <laughs> mm-hmm. you're missing a huge amount of um Socially and legally interesting and relevant stuff that's happening in that cycle that you described, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, you know, you pay the money to MasterCard to get the data, and then you're doing some script two or script three stuff with that data. And in the meantime, you are having an effect on social relations, Mm -hmm. right? You are you are transforming the conditions of economic production and social reproduction in our society. Yeah.
0: Your whole goal is to distort the market in some way yeah. if you're a startup.
1: Obviously, you're trying to have an impact. Obviously, you're trying to like, change economic conditions, relations of economic production or relations of social reproduction. That's like the point. <laughs> you're trying to have some sort of impact or intervention. And you know, insofar as law and legal regimes regulate, the processes of economic production and social reproduction in society and enact our social demands about how that stuff ought to happen, we should be, we should care <laughs> about a lot of the sort of processes of that cycle and not act like we only care at the moment it meets the market because that's missing so much of how in, in the service of cultivating and applying and extracting and accumulating prediction value, those economic relations of production and social relations of reproduction are being transformed.
0: Yeah. And I think this is where the, 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 The tax law element of this also comes in with real fire and fury as well, and I really love this. This (laughs) This is all
1: thanks to Amanda. Shout out to Amanda. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. It's you know, (laughs) it's it's great to to write such things with a tax lawyer because it's like, I mean, that is the. It, it's where it comes in in the article um, is really kind of conceptualizing like what like what is tax right like what yeah. what are taxes? What are we meant doing when do? you tax
1: people anyway?
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's like well, taxes are the state's way to try to intervene in and do some kind of redistribution around value creation, yeah. right? It's like this is how we try to incentivize or disincentivize certain kinds of value activity, creation, or capture, whatever it might be, Um, and this is how we try to redistribute that value in 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 society in in whatever ways right sometimes it's done really regressively sometimes it's done really progressively but it's still a form of redistribution that the state is trying to do and taxes are the way that the state looks at all of this economic activity around value creation that's happening and says let's you know this we're going to have a hand in in this in some way through taxes right like mm-hmm. that's a, it's a really interesting way I think to re kind of reframe the role of what taxes are meant to do as a state um it, you know it is and it is no longer just the like the blunt like the king has his tax collector come around why because he needs to fund his lavish parties somehow right it's right. like taxes are much more complex now and there is certainly still that kind of aspect of like totally. you know some people you know taxes are done to to fund, you know, lavish parties or whatever, but it is meant to have, you know, and our tax code has embedded in it these kinds of, these social demands of, we should have a social say over how value creation happens and then what happens after that value creation Mm occurs. And how it's shared. Yeah, and how it is shared, exactly. And so... In the article, I think one of the things that you really hit on here about like why this actually really matters is that like um, when so much of the value creation or value capture by these companies happens outside the the realm of like exchange value, um, it means that the state completely misses any and and and, ha- and lacks any real ability to intervene in that to have a say in that and so it's why you can have companies that grow and grow and grow and grow and become these massive social distorting market disrupting forces and uh, uh, all without like um you know all without ever making a profit, right, which means yeah. as well that like their tax burden has been nothing or or very low. they've escaped it the the pressures of the state that the state exerts through taxes they've they've escaped all of that, right mm-hmm. and like so they've been able to do all of this um by focusing on prediction value, by focusing on exactly. social data, uh, and it, it actually becomes another way of doing arbitrage. It becomes another way of doing, re- of doing regulatory avoidance, but in this case, it's tax arbitrage and tax avoidance, and not just the ways that we know that these companies do through these you know, um, <laughs> tax accountants. Right. Uh, and, not the and direct
1: the, sneaky techniques. Yeah,
0: not the direct sneaky techniques, but the indirect techniques that come from um, having a a paradigm of governance and a paradigm of tax law which is incapable of of, of uh, capturing the paradigm of of prediction value and growth oriented uh, you know strategies that these firms are operating in there is um uh, there's something in the panel so when we had a public panel talking about some of these issues recently, uh, you know, you and Jake Goldenfine, who's a friend of mine at University of Melbourne Law School, I think you guys really hit on something that resonated with me too. Is that like we this old canard that like the law lags behind technology? Mm-hmm. I mean, I I hate it for various reasons. Um,
1: yeah, it's one of those things that gets said all the time. But anyone who's thought about the topic for like ten minutes. Is like this is clearly wrong yeah it's wrong it's <laughs>
0: clearly wrong and I, I and for me like it bugged me in large part because i was like no like law doesn't lag behind technology uh like these companies invest a lot of time and effort and money into like arbitraging avoiding and changing the law yeah. to suit them and so but it's also and, and then it's more like and we just need better what would actually happen is if we enforced the laws already on the books then it would actually address and solve a lot of the problems that we have, but then I think it was Jake said something that really resonated with me too and added another uh, kind of dimension to this is that like it's also not the case that law lags behind technology because that metaphor kind of makes us think that like that the law and technology are in a race. And yeah. the law is a few they're like laps. They're on the
1: same track. Yeah, the they're on the same track.
0: The law, the law is just a few laps behind technology. It's yeah. always huffing and puffing and running and trying to catch up. Yeah. But it's like, that's not actually the case. They are, the law and technology are, are playing different games. Yeah. And, and the law hasn't even recognized that technology is playing a different game, let alone learn the rules of that game so they can get in and try to play too. Um, And I think this is what your paper really crystallizes here too, is that like the law is still in a paradigm of exchange value, of direct kind of commodity production, of like conversion of, you know, capital into commodity, money into commodities into more money, right? Like that's the kind of paradigm that the law is playing in right now. Mm -hmm. and as we've been laying out for the last hour, um, the the tech sector and, and beyond that, I mean, increasingly as more industries become driven by data capital and become focusing on trying to use, use and generate and cultivate prediction value and social data, increasingly they are playing a different game that is outside of the ability of the law to govern the game that they're playing.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, people should definitely check out Jake has written like a number of great pieces kind of on this kind of deep conceptual disconnect between what the law is in the business of regulating when it regulates things like data governance and privacy and consumer protection and what technology companies are in the business of um, kind of cultivating and the subjects that they're constituting when they're in the business of like, you know, producing mass continual data flows from which to extract value. Um, I also have this like funny piece called the limits of lawfulness where I'm like (laughs) trying to make a point like this um, in the context of like the tech ethics debate where so many people are like, oh, we don't need like ethics codes. We need law. And I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, but like the problem isn't like more law. right? It's like law can You know, I've been saying this a lot this weekend, like law is a way of enacting our social demands. So you can't think of it as like separate from, or prior to, or a fix for what it is that we actually, what kind of technology production, what kind of political economy we want. It's one input. (laughs) <laughs> or it's like mm. one way of like enforcing a particular set of like social goals that we want. As you said about tax law, it can be horrible and regressive and just a way to find like Louis the lavish slavish parties. <laughs> um, or it can be like an incredibly powerful tool of um, addressing and tackling um, wealth inequality. But, mm. um, the tax law has the capacity to be both of those things. Um, what makes it one versus the other is not like some like technical set of codes in the tax law, though that those are those those things are like the stuff of the social structure. Those those are like the little scaffolds of the particular transformations we want to make in the social structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to that point, like, you know, I think what we're really interested in kind of drawing attention to here is law is kind of on the one hand missing (laughs) so much of how in the, in the cultivation of social data in the pursuit of predicting, in the pursuit of cultivating prediction value, we are like asleep at the wheel at, uh, with respect to like a lot of forms of power, um, cultivation and wealth cultivation and social transformation that were they happening in old school forms, like, we would have tax answers for. We would have data Mm. uh, protection or data governance responses to. It's just because they're sort of happening in this new paradigm um, that things that we've already, like suggested we are normatively committed to doing with law we're like not doing um and you know jake's work on sort of the conceptual disconnects i think are very helpful there um but to complicate your uh, conception of like the law lags behind like no they're playing different games story a little bit more um you know arbitrage and like the sneaky techniques and like the conceptual disconnects like law the, the sort of existing paradigm of law is is like an input into those strategies that the companies make right mm-hmm. so like it's because we tax income and not wealth <laughs> that like that that is like a that that is like a an input into the business strategies that we're seeing and it's mm-hmm. like because um you know we only govern data production in this very sort of individual way that that companies like Pursue the types of strategies that they do, and so you know what makes it really interesting. I think for me to kind of think about um, the way that the law is kind of playing a different game is that like the 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 wrong game that the law is playing, in a set, in a sense still is like helps to determine the rules and the strategies of the game that technology companies <laughs> do play. <laughs> Cause they're like, oh, well, if I do this thing, then I'm going to like get dinged on the law. Right. Mm. Like if I raise price, if I use prediction value to raise prices for consumers, then the antitrust, then they're going to be like all over me, you know, like yeah, at a picnic. So like, that's still like, I'm aware of that legal rule in how I develop my strategies if only to avoid it um, and to do the arbit- conceptual arbitrage in, um, in, in, in my various strategies.
0: Yeah. And we could go for so much longer talking about all the ways that that happens. I mean, I oh, think that's yeah. that, that's a, that's a really necessary further complication of it. But I mean, like, I mean, but we, uh, uh, you know, it, Personally, you and I this week, but also like we on TMK have have talked uh, very, uh, very often about this and about these things, especially in the in the context of like the insurance industry. Right. And stuff like that, where it's like, you know, so much of the regulation, like so much of the consumer regulation around insurance focuses on the um, the underwriting phase of like pricing. And like predicting and pricing risk, you mm-hmm. know, um, and and that's like the vast majority of the regulatory focus um, and the rules We'd around pay it.
1: Attention to a price moment. Yeah, you know? they
0: focus on the price, <laughs> and it, because it is, it gets to what you were talking, what your whole article is about as well. Is that like the law kind of uses price as a proxy for? something valuable is happening here and Mm -hmm. we should make sure that's happening in the right way and it's fair Um, and it's it's, like
1: doing yeah yeah it's it's
0: not discriminatory it's fair it's happening in the right way for the right purposes so they kind of use pricing as a proxy for value but as we've been talking about that that misses like the the whole other submerged iceberg of ways that value happens and so because like all of that uh Focuses on that the underwriting moment in the insurance value chain. That also means that insurers pay a lot of attention to making sure that, like, that the way that they model, predict, and price risk um, does not at least does not blatantly run afoul of the law it still does run afoul of the law as we know from like the regular class action lawsuits that are happening <laughs> um against insurance companies but like they they do a lot of effort and they have compliance teams and stuff to ensure that like the underwriting phase is good um but what that also then means is that like the insurance value chain is Uh, much longer complex and more fragmented than just that underwriting moment. And so what that means is that there's like far less attention paid to um, like the marketing scores that are used and the marketing analytics that are used to make decisions about like Who's even going to see or not see particular insurance products or how the how they're going to get quotes for policies or not get quotes for policies it it doesn't pay attention to the ways in which like fraud detection systems are again predicting um, and yep. analyzing like who is uh, you know, doing something dubious or shady, who's going yeah. to defraud us and thus who is going to be rejected outright or who's going to be actioned for further investigation, exactly. who's going to be thrown into the labyrinthian process of, of, of appeals and so on with the insurance company um, or, you know, uh, and, and you know we see it with claims as well you know like how are these claims going to be so it, like it, it goes on and on and on and on where it's like the the again it speaks to your point that like because the law pays attention to very specific things and sets rules around those very specific things um then the companies. uh Will will respond to that, and then go off and do a lot of innovation or attention or capture in other places yeah. where the law is not paying attention to 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 the games that are being played. Yeah. And so it is. You're right. Like it's not as if they're two separate paradigms. They are again very much in relationship with each other. But we are understanding of it as this like race that they're running right. does not actually understand the relationship between data governance and, and, and value creation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's not like a temporally or like you <laughs> raced game of whack-a-mole. It's kind of more like conceptual, like paradigm, uh, whack-a-mole, but you <laughs> know, I mean, I kind of take like a grim, I don't know. I've been like weirdly optimistic. I've been like the optimistic one this week, but like, um, which is not always the role I play, but uh, you know, I, I, I think it's kind of uh in a way we should take we should take kind of like a nice lesson from the fact that you know the insurance industry is like intensely aware of how regulated they are at the underwriting stage, which is to mm. say that like once we do get our legal focus trained on something, again, like <laughs> Law has, like, the force of law behind it, right? <laughs> like, it's not just, like, us yelling outside of the entity, right? Like, they pay attention to that. They invest in complying and or at least, like, being hiding the ways in which they're complying, but then they face, like, the threat of expensive class actions, you know? Like, there is kind of an accountability mechanism that we can develop um, if you can get the law's eye trained on the right relevant thing, Um And companies really respond (laughs) Mm -hmm. to the areas where they are regulated. And so, you know, um, I kind of, there's a way to take like a, a, a hopeful or like a a, a potential empowering kind of lesson from that, um, which is to say like, okay, they're paying a lot of attention to underwriting. How do we sort of transpose that across the entire value chain? And the first step of course is giving legal scholars and policymakers and regulators, the right conceptual tool to understand that the kind of proxy that they've been using of like the pricing moment is very, is incomplete. Mm. (laughs) Um, But again, making the pitch that like the normative thing that animates you to pay attention to underwriting is the same thing (laughs) that ought to animate you caring about fraud detection and um, marketing. (laughs) And if we can sort of make the case that like you've already shown like we've already shown that we are like legally committed to ensuring certain conditions, baselines, threshold, floor, like floor th- floors of like fairness and accuracy and like equal opportunity um, in the provision of this thing that is social insurance. And we've only been focused on this narrow thing because we're like, oh, the pricing is where the value happens. But once we can make the case that the value happens up and down the chain and that these, like, shenanigans are happening up and down the chain, we don't have to come up with, like, a new normative reason to regulate. Mm. Um, We already have a legal commitment to, like, make a case to. Um, And, you know, I mean, I think some people can get—and even myself at times, you can kind of feel like, well, you're just— okay, yeah, we're not playing like a temporal game of whack-a-mole, but we're still playing a game of whack-a-mole because like, Mm. okay, now we're just setting the new conditions of the game that companies are going to try to get around. Um, But I don't know. Yeah, I'm sort of like, yeah, do you wash dishes? Like (laughs) they get dirty. (laughs) It's a process. And you got to wash them again. Yeah. I don't know. This is just like feminism 101, you know? Like we just got to engage in the continual labor of social reproduction. And a lot of that doesn't look like you know, progress. It looks like just maintenance, but you know, I think a lot of what, uh, that game, those games of whack-a-mole are just sort of creating dynamic conditions of like social maintenance, you know, yeah, (laughs) capitalists going to capital. And like, you have to try to constrain and regularize, um, and impose some conditions, um, for, if maybe not human flourishing, human survival <laughs> on top of them. And like, that's a dynamic game. Like there's no end to laundry. There's no end to dishes. There's no end to the legal game of having to sort of catch up conceptually and impose um, impose social demands back on these strategies. Um, we're not like one and done, but mm-hmm. um, but we do have the tools to make them... Uh, to make companies pay attention to and comply with social rules. Um, And and we can at least do that with law. We cannot overthrow capitalism with law. It is fully embedded in (laughs) capitalism. But we can do this one thing. We can at least keep the sink moderately empty of dishes
0: <laughs> i love that i think that's exactly right i mean i i'm i'm fully on board with this that like we have to get out of this eventual thinking right in terms of like thinking about the events a one once we reach an event it will be done problem. yeah and like yeah it's all it's I all know. process I'm just too feminist for that i'm just like
1: no there's no like you, you just do the social care work forever you know
0: <laughs> and 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 uh yeah it's all process you know it's it's dynamic it's relational it's all process. I mean, I think again, and, uh, you know, I think of like, the work of someone like Eric Olin, right? You know, yeah. the kind of the you know, the soci think about the sociology of real utopias, right? Yeah. And there again, that was like his whole argument there, which I think is dead, right? And you know, he's an analytical Marxist as well. So he's very much thinking about it in these like both dialectical materialist historical terms that like utopia is also not like an an event. And then we get there
1: then, and everything's good.
0: Yeah, it's like no and it's, no
1: one does anything evil ever again.
0: Everything is a problem. It's all a process towards something. And then even if you get to this thing that you're like, ah, oh, like I can take a big bre- like sigh of relief. We're like at utopia. It's like, uh, I hate to break it to you, but there's this thing called entropy. It's why the dishes <laughs> are always need to be washed, right? They're like, right. like disorder and decay is a natural force, both a natural and a social force. Yeah. And it requires the regular maintenance of that of you know getting to where you want to get and then once you get there you still have to work hard to kind of keep there Mm -hmm. right and so like I think everything you've been laying out here as well is that like in the long arc of getting to where we want to get like this is what we have to do we have to keep pushing further and further and yes like it is going to be this kind of constant um, you know dueling with capital right that like they're going to respond to to changes and find ways to yeah. loophole them and arbitrage them and, and 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 push against them. And it's like okay, well now we have to like we have to kind of keep keep ourselves sharp, you know, mm-hmm. in this kind of in this in this constant fight. Um otherwise like the only other alternative is to just give up. Right. And like, yeah. that's not an alternative, you know, it's, no. it's not an option to just give up. Um, and it's certainly not one that, you know, despite the fact that like, you know, TMK is, you know, we, we are constantly talking about things that make you feel like depressed and <laughs> pessimistic and cynical. We I mean,
1: have, as I like to say, it's like, well, between being a lawyer and working on the digital economy i can be a bummer in every room you yeah
0: know? totally <laughs> uh, but we have also always pushed back against the idea that we are like a doomerist um podcast or that we are doomers uh in our, in our outlook because doom means that it's like it's nihilism there's no hope and it's yeah. like well, i like we wouldn't spend all this time working on this stuff and thinking about it and being and caring so much about it if we weren't like, you know, we're doing our little part, whatever it might be, to kind of keep, keep that pushing right. towards something better. But I think this is a great way to wrap things up, especially yeah. for, you know, if we want to understand data in the ways that we've been talking about and that we, you know then then you know i i think your work the new paper with amanda uh really kind of trains our eyes on the right things and gives us the right ways to think about them um so if we're if we're if we want to keep sparring with capital and keep getting the you know and try to get the upper hand then i think that this work is is absolutely crucial for for doing so
1: well, awesome! Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it's a real pleasure.
0: Awesome, so good to chat. Um, I will. There'll be a link to the to the new paper mm-hmm. in the episode description. Um, is there anything else you want to direct people's attention to before we head out?
1: Um, no, not nothing specific. Um, so the piece is forthcoming from the Columbia Law Review in its final form. It'll be out sometime in the middle of twenty twenty four. But in the meantime, yeah, I guess. Uh, there's SSR, SSRN link we can send people to. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I would just, like, highly recommend that people also check out um, Amanda's work um, on tax. Like, so she also works on cryptocurrency and just taxing digital assets generally. Um and yeah, I think that that's kind of it. I don't uh, have anything to sell, you know?
0: <laughs> Good. Um, yeah. So everybody check that out. Uh, another, I think necessary piece in the, in the over here, but um, for, and then everybody else can also find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. Um, I think over the holidays, we might take a couple weeks off for the free episodes, but but we'll still get Patreon episodes going up. And so if you if you're gonna uh, miss your TMK during the the, the New Year holidays, um, then go over to Patreon and there'll still be a, a steady stream of, of new content over there. So find us there and until next time later. later.